Welcome back to Finnegan and Friends, the show about waking into a dream world. James Joyce was clear that he thought of Finnegan's Wake as his book of the night, and the dreamlike nature of the book suggests that this might be a night in the dreamy mind in particular. Perhaps the dreamy mind of the main character, H.C.E., perhaps another's mind. But maybe it's not all a dream. In any case, there's a kind of language that has the disjointed freedom of a dream. Here's the novelist Joshua Cohen. It's about finding a personal language, a dream language, a night language, a private language, maybe in a Wittgensteinian sense, right? Where he can talk, Joyce or HCE, whoever the narrator is, you know, can talk independently and freely without the real, before the daylight of, you know, received opinion or the daylight of normal life restores him to his senses and tells him how to be. And that Joycean freedom could be our readerly freedom. So much of a reaction is already provided in the critical apparatus that I just have to ignore it and trust myself to, to kind of stumble through and attend to the emotional reaction. Which again, like if I have to speculate, is I think what, what Joyce was doing uh, himself when he was writing it. He was putting aside all other novels or what novels could be or what novels might have been or should have been or could have been and asking himself how he speaks or how speech is of his own tongue, let's say. But The Wake isn't just a dream of pure release. No dream conveys utter freedom anyway, I think. Here's Joseph Nugent, the Joycean speaking from Dublin. As we step back, our understanding of the book is that this is a dream. It's a nightmare. It's a dream of anxiety. That, of course, explains in large part why it is so difficult to understand. That's to say, no more than can we expect to be able to string together the bits and pieces of our own dreams the night. Afterwards, how right would have been Joyce to write a book of the night in, in simple prose? It seems like HCE has committed some infraction or is being accused of some infraction, so there is a defensiveness, and that does relate to this anxiety dream you're talking about. Right, you use the word defensiveness, but indeed you could say an anxiety. And the, the anxiety is what makes this a rather bad dream. There is a note from beginning to end, a note of anxiety. And quite the cause of that anxiety is what we as readers are frequently attempting to understand. We know that it is, as you said, about an infraction. And we've got a pretty good idea about what that infraction is. We certainly know that it's of a sexual nature. We know that there was an observation. There are questions of voyeurism and questions of huge quantities of guilt and uncertainty and shame and that. Precisely what they emerge from, we don't quite know. But that's one of the reasons that we turn the page desperately in order to see if we can trace a little bit more about precisely what happened there. I tried this reading out with Joshua Cohen. A lot of this does seem to be like dreamy epic language on the defense. There's a lot of either prosecution or defensive or defense language. That's not what comes back to my memory, you know? I mean, I think it has every sort of language. I mean, I, I, is there a specific... Let's see. I just I just randomly opened in that old, like, the ancient practice of opening a random page and seeing what you read but it's like right away describe her hustle along why can't you spits on the errand while it's hot and even just like 
exclaiming, demanding, describe her, hustle along. There, it, it's sort of cop language. That was just a page I just randomly turned to. But there are often encounters like that or exchanges like that where someone is demanding something and somebody responds defensively. Maybe we can just chalk that up to the dream logic of things jutting out so suddenly, like suddenly just the phrase describe her leaps, leaps up just because that's the way the dreamy mind moves. It's kind of like that. What is that? That Beckett story, the come in story. Joyce is, is, you know, is almost totally blind, is dictating Finnegan's Wake to Beckett. And in the middle of the dictation, someone knocks at the door. And, you know, Beckett is kind of just so engaged with taking this dictation. He doesn't kind of hear it. And Joyce says, come in. And Beckett writes down, come in. You know, Joyce has him read back what he's written. And Joyce says, you know, what was that moment that come in? And Beckett said, no, you said that. And then, you know, Joyce was like, oh, that was the guy who was at the door. And Beckett says, so I'll take it out. And Joyce said, no, no, keep it in. I'm not saying that like describe her is anything like come in, but I think this was a book that was open to every sort of voice. And describe her sounds to me like Joyce talking to himself. Oh, I got to describe this person. And in the same way that Joyce kind of transcribes what maybe in Joyce's Freudian guys, we call his super ego of like, now you got to describe her. Now you got to do the setting. Now you got to do this. Now you got to do that. And he allows that kind of speech to the self to be on the page. He allowed speech from outside to be on the page. It's this odd combination of total design and total openness to accident. That to me is, is, is as great a encapsulation of what it really means to live as a writer. It might help especially to think of The Wake as a writer's version of a dream in which an author's design is constantly hinted without ever being purely revealed. Here's Catherine O'Callaghan, Joyce Expert. The great Finnegan's Wake scholar John Bishop talks about the whole book as being a dream of one man and that we have all of these archetypes within it. And that there is certainly a sense there that that is a sort of collective unconscious that we're encountering. One of the riddles in the book, um, they're, they're, it's very hard to ever say there's a definitive answer to anything. But in recent years, I've been considering the idea that one of the riddles, the answer is the Brocken Spectre, which is this figure, a meteorological phenomenon happens if you are up on a mountain and it's sunrise or sunset and there is mist below you. Sometimes you can encounter an enormous figure which seems to stretch for miles in front of you with a halo or glory around its head, a rainbow around its head. And it was very, very frightening for people who first encountered this because it looked like a monster or a god. And if you moved, of course, it would move with you because, in fact, it is simply a shadow cast of yourself. The phrase Brock Inspector is played into the text and it actually appears on this mountain, Kirkpatrick, but also it takes its name from the Brocken Mountain in Germany, which was known for witchcraft and strange happenings. I think Joyce takes this idea of the Brock Inspector, which is that we, as a reader, we send out huge shadows of ourselves over the text, and that's how we encounter it, but also that the writer does that as well, and that the text itself is a sort of a broken specter of Joyce. So he is this small figure, but he can send out under these conditions this enormous shadow with this rainbow around its head. With all this haziness, it's hard to read The Wake only as a dream because it suggests other ways of reading it almost on every page. Joshua Cohen again. But it's it's toward the end of part two, 
the cop shows up and the pub is closed. And then I guess HCE becomes a king. It's this mid part in the book, you know, the book's in, in four parts, right? And it's the closing up of this bar. It's the end of this part of the evening. That's this storytelling, you know, at the bar. It's sort of last call and everyone goes home. I always thought like if the book ended there, it would give people a double sense of what the book was, whether it was a dream book of night or a kind of drunken dream book and whether it really was, you know, awake or asleep. It's the continuation of the book in three and four where I believe it becomes more and more disjointed. It becomes more and more maddening, frankly, less and less connected as kind of people continue to kind of drop off and sleep and some people kind of wake and become reborn that really complicates the the two parts before it. I spoke to Jade Wu, a sleep expert at Duke University, to figure out how dreams get jumbled up with the world beyond the dream. What does happen to us when we sleep? I think sometimes people think of sleep as just your mind turning off or taking a break, but actually there's a lot going on in the brain. For example, the brain will go through several stages of different types of sleep where it's doing different types of things. During REM sleep, which you've probably heard about, that's short for rapid eye movement. And during this type of sleep, the brain is actually so active that the brain waves you see during the stage look almost as if you're awake. And this is a stage where most of your dreaming happens, where a lot of emotional processing is happening, where the mind is really, the brain rather, is trying to make sense of a lot of the things that you saw or heard or felt or wondered about during the day. And it's sort of mishmashing all of these elements together just to try to sort through the wheat from the chaff, trying to sort through what's important, what to throw into long-term storage versus throw out the window. And in this process of sort of almost film editing, you end up stringing together a lot of different disparate elements that may not make sense together. And that's why dreams are so bizarre. It's like you barged into this really busy film editing studio while someone was in the middle of making a film and you saw these different film strips added together and it's, they're not ready yet. The studio's messy, they're not done. doesn't really make sense. And that's what you're seeing when you're dreaming. That's just one of the types of sleep. There are other stages of sleep, including slow wave sleep, which is what we generally consider deep sleep. That's when the brain is doing a lot more restorative work. So it is cleaning out junk from the brain that the brain doesn't need. It is healing the body. It's sending out growth hormones, especially for teenagers and kids. It's doing the things that basically keep the body, the machine of the body running smoothly and in good repair. The wake makes the same connection sleep does, apparently, between one, getting things all jumbled up, and two, restoring yourself, revitalizing yourself. I thought we were getting closer to the secret of Joyce's masterpiece here. I still think we were, actually. Jumbling things up as we experience in sleep, as we experience in Finnegan's Wake, can revitalize us, can make us anew, can refresh our thinking. And what is the connection between the sense-making and the restoration? Is there a connection, or are these just separate phases completely? 
we should think of sleep as a holistic thing. It's not like you can cherry pick, oh, I want to do more deep sleep tonight. I want to do more REM. I want to have more dreams. You don't really get to choose. And that's because the brain auto adjusts how much of each stage you get based on what you need the most. So if you just run a marathon, you're probably going to get a lot of deep sleep because your body needs a lot of repair and a lot of rest. Whereas if you, I don't know, learn something new or had some more emotional experiences or had some um, interesting new things that you learned, new, so new social uh, experiences, then you may have more REM sleep if you've already gotten enough deep sleep to sort of sort through those experiences. So there's so much mystery still to the science of sleep. I don't know that we can fully answer that question yet of how exactly the different stages talk to each other or work together. All we know is that there are these different types of states when we sleep and they're not totally separate and they're not totally predictable. Well, and why does the sense-making function of REM sleep not make sense ultimately in so many dreams? It still leaves us with bewildering combinations. Is it just that in REM sleep, our minds are less successful, are less capable? Why, why is it so bewildering? When we're awake, you know, our brain works in such a way that we, at least we think we're aware of what we're doing. We can follow our train of thought from one end to the other for the most part. And this is what we call consciousness, this sort of stringing together of our experiences in a way that seems to make sense to us. Now, this is beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but it turns out that even when we're awake, there's a lot more going on between the scenes that doesn't make as much sense and isn't as much in our conscious awareness. And when we're dreaming and where we're sleeping, there's a lot more of that back of stage work happening. So we're obviously unconscious when we sleep. So there's not as much of that ABCD nicely aligned, nicely one step to another kind of sequence of things. We're just sort of getting a bunch of pieces of sensory information and emotional information kind of all jumbled together. One of the points of sleeping is to sort through those. And so when you're dreaming, you're not seeing that whole process of that boardroom, you know, in your brain, trying to figure all of this out. You're just getting a sneak peek. So dreaming is really just you're lifting the curtain for a moment and you're seeing a snapshot of what might be going on in one moment in your brain. You're really not seeing the whole picture. Are you seeing something, a version of reality that our conscious mind simply can't accept or could not accommodate when we sleep? Is it that we have a window into something that's real? It's, it's not an illusion. It's something real that consciousness just can't manage? Now we're getting a little philosophical. Like, what does real mean, right? In a way, everything that happens in the brain is real. It's a real experience. Whether or not it maps onto some objective truth that can be recorded with some sort of scientific instrument. I can't say that because obviously sometimes you're dreaming of things that are not physically possible, like flying or breathing underwater, but those pieces came from somewhere. So maybe you saw a movie about flying, about Superman flying, or you have some sort of metaphorical sense of freedom or, of flying, and then those pieces got added together, and suddenly you find yourself 
with wings. <laughs> I don't know how much sense that example makes, but maybe the whole point is that it doesn't necessarily make sense in the way that we think we understand the world. But whatever is happening in the brain is real. It's, you know, it's pieces of our experience being represented in some way or other that matters to the brain. And what happens to our identities, our senses of ourselves when we dream or when we fall asleep? Do we just obliterate our identity in order to expand into this different way of thinking? Do we maintain a clear sense of self when we sleep? I don't think we obliterate ourselves. I don't think we go out of ourselves into some different place where we don't exist. Because after all, you're experiencing the sleep, you're experiencing the dream. So you are still you, you're still there. It's just a different state and different perspective maybe. In terms of whether we really feel like we maintain our identity when we sleep, I think it's really more of a work in progress where I, our identity is being constantly formed when we're both awake and asleep. The way we dream and the way we sleep absolutely adds to our identity. You can think of many cultures and peoples who think that dreaming is really important or have uh, or hold some sort of special meaning. So maybe dreams are prophetic or dreams give us a window into our innermost secrets or dreams show us something that we're afraid to talk about during the day. And all of those things could be true in some sense. It depends on how much we buy into those ideas and how much we place importance upon dreaming and sleep. But I think to some extent, everybody's sleeping experience feeds back into who they are as a person. What is the experience of just falling asleep, the period in which you are falling asleep? What happens to the mind as you fall asleep? Many of us think that falling asleep is sort of like a one zero on off switch. One moment you're awake and then the next moment you're asleep. And it's actually not like that. Sleep and wake is much more of a blurry continuum. The veil between sleep and wake is actually way more blurry and porous than we usually think. For example, stage one sleep, which is the lightest stage of sleep, you may or may not really call that sleep at all. And that's because it's really easy to wake someone up from stage one sleep. People with insomnia famously don't consider themselves to be asleep when they're in stage one. During stage one, you're often aware of your surroundings and you can even think thoughts. But afterwards, when you ask someone, you know, what did you hear during this time when they were in stage one sleep, they don't remember as much. So that's kind of like a blurry twilight zone between sleep and wake. And it turns out that even when we're what we will consider fully awake, the brain sometimes dips into little micro sleeps of just a couple of seconds, a few seconds. And we might sometimes be aware of these, like if we go into a micro sleep while we're driving and suddenly there's a car in front of us that wasn't two seconds ago, you might jerk away and be like, ah, I must have fallen asleep. And sometimes these micro sleeps happen and we don't even realize it. And so this form is called local sleep, where part of our brain is doing activities that look similar to sleeping for just a moment. And dolphins do this, alligators do this, many animals can sleep one hemisphere at a time. Turns out humans kind of do that too. It looks like there are waves of slow wave sleep that can actually travel across your brain 
when you're fully awake. It's not so black or white between sleep and awake. And what is happening as we wake up, as we're getting lifted out of sleep? What is waking doing to us? How do we, how do we wake? If you were just in REM sleep, which most people are in the morning as they're waking up, if you're waking up out of REM sleep, your body goes from being essentially paralyzed to not paralyzed. So during REM sleep, because you're dreaming, your body kind of turns the off switch on your muscles so that you can't act out your dreams and hurt yourself or hurt your bed partner. And that's a good thing. And when you wake up out of REM sleep, ideally that switch flips back to, okay, muscles are on again and you can move. Sometimes when you're sort of straddling the half-wake, half-sleep world and part of your brain becomes conscious of its surroundings and you're kind of awake, but that switch hasn't been flipped yet and your body is still paralyzed, that's when you experience sleep paralysis. And when you have sleep paralysis, often it's not just that really terrifying feeling of being paralyzed while you're awake, you can also have hallucinations, which is basically like leftover dream images or brain activity that makes you see things that aren't there, but you're also half conscious. So you see that shadow in your room or that spider on your wall or that person at the foot of your bed. And it can be really, really scary. And that's another one of those examples of how sleep and wake are not so black and white. There are these weird transition stages that, you know, if if they don't go perfectly, you might find yourself stuck in the middle. I'm curious what psychology gets from hazier fields. Does psychology learn from literary work dealing with sleep or dreams? Does psychology find stuff of interest in religious or mythic ideas about sleep and dreams? When we do psychological research, we don't tend to look to those sources for understanding how the brain works. However, I think there is something to be said for understanding religious and spiritual understandings of sleep and cultural understandings of sleep. These are important because when people are experiencing these you know, weird or bizarre or difficult to understand sleep experiences, they turn often to spiritual or religious explanations. And this then feeds back into how they understand their identity, their existence, how the world works. And so I think in this way, our understanding of sleep feeds a lot of other areas of our life that are important to us. And I think sleep is one of those things historically that has been so inspirational to the imagination, you know, in terms of dream interpretation or sleep paralysis being understood as a demon or a witch riding your back or, you know, sleepwalking as something spiritual. All of these things are, I think, important to our understanding. We have interpretations about these things that inform how we live. Is there something about sleep that produces particular stories? Are there particular kinds of dream, you know, tendencies? First of all, I think sleep in general is very good for creativity because one, when you're well-rested, you're creative. And two, when you dream, you get lots of raw material for stories that you otherwise wouldn't think of. I've dreamt of gargoyles and, and swimming with fishes and flying and 
wolves with peacock feathers, just all sorts of really cool things that I may not have put together in my day thinking, wakeful thinking, but in sleep, I have less inhibition. I have less of my brain telling me, oh, this makes sense, or this is possible, and that's not possible. What is the connection between the dread of a nightmare and the wish fulfillment of a dream? How do those two become entwined? Well, a big part of what dreaming and sleeping does for us is that it gives our brains time and space to process emotional things that we otherwise are not processing. So for example, the reason why people who experience trauma are much more likely to have frequent nightmares is because they they experience something really, really terrible and horrific. And they may not have processed that fully in their waking life. And they, in fact, understandably, may be avoiding thinking about the trauma or avoiding reminders of the trauma. But it's not so easy, unfortunately. You can't just brush that out of your mind. It is still in your brain. That experience is in there. And your brain needs to process that in order to move on. And the brain takes advantage of sleeping time and dreaming time to do that if someone is not doing that when they're awake. So that, I hope, answers the question about why we sometimes dream of really horrific things. And even if you haven't experienced trauma, by the way, you may have anxieties, you may have fears, you may have heard scary stories or be dreading something in your life. And it may not directly translate to a nightmare about that thing. The general sense of anxiety that we experience, for example, during a pandemic, the general sense of tension that's floating in the air, we internalize that and we do need to process it somehow. And if we're too busy or too avoidant to process it during the day, we may be doing that at night and it may be showing up as werewolves or vampires in our dreams, even though what we're really afraid of is losing our job or losing our health care. In terms of the wish fulfillment and the nice dreams, I mean, we none of the raw ingredients in our dreams is really truly out of nowhere. So whatever we dream of, even if totally bizarre, are made up of bits and pieces that we experience during the day or things that we learn. So for example, your wish fulfillment dream might be that you climbed a super high mountain. You went on to the top of Mount Everest and you flew and you felt free as a bird. Now you haven't done that in real life, but you know what flying is. You, you know what Mount Everest is. You know that you enjoy big open spaces and perhaps the blue sky is something that gives you a sense of freedom. And all of those elements added together gives us what we need. Maybe that release, that sense of freedom, that sense of fulfillment. There's a long history and a literary history of connecting sleep with death, describing sleep and death as related somehow, not the same, but sharing certain qualities how much does that parallel hold? What are the similarities? The differences seem pretty clear, but are there ways in which the mind experiences something while sleeping that parallel death? From a psychological and biological point of view, I would say no, because sleeping is actually a very, very active state of the brain. And there's a lot of life-affirming things happening 
for example, the growth hormones that are being released and the repair work that's happening, your brain is literally refreshing itself when you sleep. So in a way, you're not so much dying as getting maybe a little younger in a way or getting a little healthier. And your body is getting a little bit more repaired and healthier too. So in a way, I would say sleeping is almost like a tiny bit of reversal of death, not so much parallel to death. I have to say that's incredible because that's basically Finnegan's Wake is this is death reversal. Yeah, that's so cool. And and just now I only talked about the biological sort of reversal of death, but I think it's also an emotional and psychological one as well because we get to rest during sleep. We get to reset. We get to have a catharsis at the end of the day. You know, if you have a really hard, long day, hey, at least you get to sleep at the end of it and you wake up with at least a little bit of a clean slate and having that rhythm and having that catharsis, that end of each cycle is really important to us psychologically. If we were just constantly awake and never got to rest, never got to reset, never got to start over again, I think that would be really traumatic to us. What One of the revitalizing, refreshing things about reading Finnegan's Wake, and I think also about sleep, is it does something, both of, both of these things, sleep and the book, do something with, with sense experience. It, they take sense data, reorder sense data, and you rethink that data. But are there particular sensory experiences that sleep privileges? Is sound elevated over sight, or does it not work that way? I think if you really think back to all the dreams you can remember, you'll probably think of them mostly as visual experiences, right? Like maybe some auditory, maybe some tactile, maybe even some other types of senses, but it's rare that you taste or smell during, during dreams. And yeah, so I think it's mostly visual. And I think that's because we're mostly visual animals and not to mention you know, we very much think in terms of language and language often ends up painting a picture. In a way, seeing visual dreams is a very symbolic way of refreshing and reviewing our experiences, both emotional and cognitive and physical. But Joyce chooses to focus especially on the sound of language in his dream book. The music of the language is the one thing every reader can grasp. The sounds allow the book to get into voice further and multiple people's voices, many characters. I think that dreams, you know, dreams are our only opportunity to really be other people. One of the fundamental purposes of narrative prose is to spend enough time kind of inhabiting another consciousness that you yourself sort of undergo a a metamorphosis or sort of a transfiguration where you can actually feel and inhabit another person's life and mind, it's, it's something that takes an enormous amount of time on the page and the writer never really experiences that, or at least I haven't. I've occasionally felt like I could see things like my character. I could feel things like a character. I could hear and speak, but always there's that super ego sort of floating over the surface that's always kind of saying, well, will a reader have this experience. And truthfully, if, if you go full method and you're fully inhabiting a character, you're probably never going to get any writing done, you know, unless your character himself is a writer. So it really is left to like to dream 
you don't have to apologize for anything in dream. You don't have to worry about how you're perceived in dream. You can be what you're not. The idea that the book contains the world, you know, where the book is so, even though it's, it's you know, there's this sort of provincialism, this Irish provincialism, which is always there with Joyce, which, which is always, you know, grounding and earthy and gives flavor. You also have this openness to the, to the universe. I, I would say, you know, that's, that's just nighttime. I think that's just dream where our minds, you know, are unfettered. There's a loose limbed quality to the wake that seems despite the apparently fairly harsh circumstances written under to be like a, a book of second youth, maybe. Maybe that's what night is, you know, second youth. Thank you for listening to Finnegan and Friends. Guests in this series are the novelist Joshua Cohen, author of Wits and Moving Kings, the actor and director Alwyn Fuere, who you can see in movies like Mandy, and whose stage adaptation of The Wake is called River Run, Catherine O'Callaghan, Joycean at UMass Amherst, Joseph Nugent, Joycean at Boston College, and impresario behind Zoom in the Wake, which you can watch over on YouTube. Philip Kitcher, emeritus at Columbia University, whose book on the wake is Joyce's Kaleidoscope. Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke, and Elok Jha, science journalist with The Economist, and author of The Water Book, which in this case is not a euphemism for Finnegan's Wake. I'm Adam Coleman, and thanks again. <laughs>